right, we're just going to go ahead and jump right into the sermon today. Let's, let's do that. If you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 15. Last week, uh, we, we really focused in, uh, and this is all kind of an attempt of getting ready for next year and what we're really going to be trying to focus as a church next year. But last week, we tried to dig under the surface of Jesus and how he sees the church as a family. That if we're going to live into Jesus' view for church community as family, that means we have to understand the gospel. Not just positionally or or vertically, but horizontally. So we did a deep dive into uh, Jesus' culture's view of family and how it far outweighed everything else. Uh, But then how Jesus envisioned himself ripping that apart, not to deconstruct, but to reconstruct a more pure, more beautiful, more universal family through his blood and in his sacrifice. So that at the cross, the restoration that Jesus offers is not just the vertical restoration from us to God. It is that, but it's also the horizontal restoration from us to one another. Because Genesis tells a story where sin actually puts two separations, vertically and horizontally. So I want to dive into that just a little bit deeper this week to talk about how how do we participate in a horizontally focused community through the power of the Gospels. Because the reality is relationships do hold power and influence to who we are and how we interact with and respond to the world. When I was a sophomore, I just finished my sophomore year of college, Uh, Haley and I had just started dating. I was still working on losing that freshman like 50 that I had gained and I had a new girlfriend and I was like I really want to put in the effort to get back into shape and so when I got home that summer I decided uh, that what I wanted to do is do a triathlon sprint don't do that if you want to lose weight there are better ways it's a horrible way Um, so quarter mile swim 12 mile bike ride 5k run that was what we decided to, to sign up to do And I didn't want to do it by myself, so I invited my best friend. I called my best friend. I was like, hey, would you want to do it with me? It's 15 minutes from where we live. Uh, It's on this date. We can train together. And he, being my best friend, was like, yeah, let's let's do it. So we set course to start training for this triathlon throughout the summer. So we spend time. Each day I get off work. I was interning at a church, and I would get, uh, get off, go to his house, and we would go swim at the local park, or we would go for a run, or we would ride bikes. We would try to do something uh, to, to train. And a couple weeks before the triathlon, I got an email from the coordinator that said, hey, we need your swim times. That's the first thing apparently you do. And I don't know if every triathlon is this way. I am not an expert in triathlons by any means. Uh, nor would I claim to be. But this one, uh, you started off with the quarter-mile swim, and it was in this lake. And so they wanted to know how fast you typically swam quarter-miles. Let me tell you how often I had swam quarter-miles up until this point, much less thought about timing them. So I get this email, and I say, tell them, hey, they want to know our times. Apparently, this is how they determine the stagger start for, like, the fastest people start first, the slowest people start last. So you're not having fast people have to pass. See the picture there? So I'm like, I don't, I don't know what I swim a quarter mile in. Like, I run a quarter mile, or I did at the time in like a little bit over a minute. So maybe, let's just times five. Five minutes, sure. So we arbitrarily suggested that we swim a quarter mile in five minutes. Went on about my day. I didn't think any different of it. Now, a couple weeks, or about a week later, I was sitting at dinner with my family, and my sister at the time was in high school, and she was an all-state swimmer in high school. So I thought, I'm just going to ask her, Morgan, how fast do you swim a quarter mile in? And she listed something like 12 minutes. And I was like, ooh, 
That is not close to what I listed. So I went back in, because I knew I wasn't going to swim as fast as her, so I went back in and I changed my time to uh, like 15 minutes, and I forgot to tell my friend to change his time. So here's a picture of us at this triathlon. Um, you can see our numbers. He, uh, he got to start the 22nd person, and like he's at the front of the line. It's all these really shredded, super athletic people that, you know, that's all they do is like they run circuits of triathlons, and then he's in the middle of it, and I started 257th. So I still don't think he's forgiven me for that. But... Uh, Here's the funny part, though. Not funny part, but kind of the cool part of it. So he started, by the time uh, he was already out of the water getting on his bike, by the time I was even going into the water, there was that much of like a 15-minute separation. But by the time we got to the end, uh, we went online when we got home and checked our times from start to finish, and our times were four seconds apart. We didn't run beside each other. We weren't there because of my mess up. But we still ended up four seconds apart in a matter that took over like an hour or so. I don't even remember. I'm never going back to that memory. Like that's, that's as far as I go. But I tell that story because I think it's an interesting point that proves there's something deeply intrinsic that forms who we are as we spend time with the people around us. So, so that me and my friend, by training for this triathlon together, actually came to the point that even though we weren't running alongside or swimming alongside of each other, we still finished with the almost exact same time. Because there's something that relationships do that do that type of thing to us that makes us perform and act very similarly to the people that we spend time with. That even in situations where that person isn't present, we are made better or worse because of that relationship. So the longing within us I think, is to have true relationship. Had my friend Witt said, no, I'm not going to do the triathlon with you, I probably would have said, well, then I guess I'm not doing the triathlon anyways and would have been done with it from there. There's something that relationships draw out within us uh, that we're willing to do something with others that we aren't willing within ourselves. There's this longing of having these types of friendships that we can participate in. And hopefully they're ones that lead us to be better people. But, but here's the modern problem. There's a book by a guy named Sebastian Younger. Uh, it's called Tribe. It's actually, if you have a bookmark, it's on the back of some suggested reading, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, now, just heads up, Younger is not a Christian. He is uh, evolutionary. He's trying to define some things through science and all of this other stuff, but he makes a really interesting point. Uh, Younger has been a lifelong uh, journalist, reporter, uh, but he also was an army man. He fought, so he fought some he even went contract work with the Bosnia War in the 1990s. Um, he fought with Americans, some other things. That was his lifetime career, journalist, uh, soldier. And he began to notice this really interesting theme in the army and, and between his friends that they would be overseas in the Middle East or somewhere like that, and every person around him would just talk over and over again, I can't wait to get home. I just I can't wait to see my wife and my kids again. I can't wait to go home. But what he found really interesting is that those same men would get home, and then after about six months, they would sign up for another stint to go back overseas. And that seemed to him to be this really curious thing. Why would somebody desire to come home only to push themselves back out overseas? And so it led him to write an article for the New York Times in 2016, which then pushed him into a deeper dive, which is where this book Tribe came from. Tribe came from. And what he found is that he believes that entrenched into Western society is a severe lack of community. 
In fact, he even traces it all the way back to the uh, colony days as, as people settling into the colonies and noticed how multiple instances and in writings suggest that uh, white uh, colonists would actually go and begin living life with Native American tribes. But there were never any accounts of any Native Americans coming to live within the white colonies. In fact, there's multiple stories that Benjamin Franklin even wrote about that they would go and they would rescue people from these tribes and bring them back to civilization. And then the person would turn around and go right back to the tribe again. And he takes that and he ties it to the same idea with modern soldiers. And his suggestion is, and I think he's onto something, we really stink at doing community well. And it's wrecking us. He has a quote, it says this in his book, a person living in the modern age can, for the first time in history, go through an entire day or an entire life, mostly encountering complete strangers. They can be surrounded by others, yet feel deeply and dangerously alone. And the evidence that this is hard on us is overwhelming. So he goes on to say that the mental health crisis and the statistically just sky-high suicide rates and drug use. It's all related to this problem of community. Now, he goes on to, I think, misassess what the solution is because he doesn't give a God answer. But if we all know that relationships deepen the human souls, but our current, our current cultural climate seems to actually do the opposite, is there a better and more true way, truer way to have relationship? Welcome to John chapter 15. As Jesus is giving this final kind of lesson to his disciples before he's going to go to the cross, this is a portion of what he says to them. Verse 1, I am the true vine, my father is the gardener. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he removes, and he prunes every branch that does produce fruit so that it will produce more fruit. You are already clean, uh, you, sorry, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine. Neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. The one who remains in me and I in him produce much fruit because you can do nothing without me. And if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. But if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit to prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is my command. Love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I've commanded you. So I don't call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. I have called you friends because I have made known to you everything I've heard from my father. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I appointed you to go and produce fruit, that your fruit should remain, so that whatever you ask in my father's name, he will give you. This is what I command you, love one another. Isn't Jesus easy to get lost in? You ever just read and you're like, whoa, I don't... No, and he is. This, this is, I think Jesus does that intentionally so that you actually have to go in and study these words. You can't just read them and 
grasp it. And there's no way we're going to do an in-depth dive into this. But what I really just want to do today is hover over this text. Just at the top of it, we're not going to get super deep into it. But hover at the top of this text. And I want you to see that as Jesus prepares his disciples for his departure, he recognizes their need to take their relationship with him, right? The vertical relationship, if we think about it that way. And then to turn it outwards towards one another. So he starts, remain in me as I remain in God. Stay in this relationship. Do my commandments. Love me. It's the vertical relationship of us to God. But it's always then for the sake of turning it outwards. So that he comes to the point to say things like, verse 12, this is my command, love one another as I love you. Verse 17, this is what I command you, love one another. Jesus understands that true relationship with him is the only hope at true relationship with others. So we might just say something along the lines of God is the only means of true relationship. God is the only means of true relationship. Now, now here's the thing about relationship. It demands mutuality. You actually can't have relationship without mutuality. Anytime that you do, it's, it's toxic. Um, the one word that we try to have is like stalking. Right? No mutuality there. So it's a one-way relationship. And there are other ways in our culture that allow for one-way relationships, but they're never what we enjoy, right? I mean, a boss to an employee, a king to his um, substantience. What's the word for that? A, a king to the people that he's over, to his subjects. Even parent to children in some bad situations. And every one of those situations, those relationships are hardly formative. And they're really only tolerable for short stints. So the second quitting time comes, I'm going to go talk bad about my boss because there's not a true relationship there. And the moment the king leaves the room, we begin to talk about how terrible of a king he is. Or the day the child has come to the self-sustainability to, to leave, they leave. And the relationship ends because there's no mutuality. And the same is true for God. If our relationship for God is only God to us and never us to God, or it's only us to God and never God to us, the problem with all the other religions in the world, in my opinion, then how on earth can we have a relationship with God? It demands mutuality, but here's the challenge of that. Jesus' words here are all about how he's offered us the chance to have a mutual relationship with our creator. But here's the irony. Because Christian orthodoxy, and that's just the word for right doctrine, tells us that when it comes to God and who he is and it comes to us and who we are, there's some vast differences. You know, again, the idea that God made everything and owns everything and he created us from nothing so we own nothing. And so what is someone who owns nothing that only exists because of the person that has everything that gave them everything give back to the person that has everything? You guys feel this way Christmas time? How do we find mutuality with a God who already has everything? What could we even give back to him? How do we have a mutually true relationship vertically with God? Two, two things, just based off of this text, and again, we're just hovering here. But, but two ideas. One is remain and extend. That we mutually relate with God. We share in relationship with him by remaining and extending. So let's start with this word remain. It's the Greek word minnow. It's used a little bit over 200 times in the New Testament. And the vast majority of times it gets used is used by John. 
It is like one of John's favorite words. So if you kind of did a pie chart to look at how often minnow was used, it's somewhere in the vicinity of like 60 to 70% is in either the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, or Revelation. That's where it gets used and very minimally outside of those situations. So if you read this text, and I can't highlight every one, but just verse 4, remain in me. Uh, and then can you, unless you remain in me, at the end of verse 4, I am the vine, you one who remains in me, I let him produce fruit. Just over, verse 6, if anyone does not remain in me, he is thrown away. Verse 7, if you remain in me, and my words remain in you, do you see what John is doing here? That word remain comes up over and over and over. Minnow is the Greek word, over and over. And there's different ways it can be translated. Your Bible might say abide in me or stay in me. Um, so I think the best that I could come up with, this is a Pastor Philip translation, so this is not a scholarly translation of the word. Uh, but if I could just contextually put some meaning to it, I might give the translation of something like to persevere with full involvement, to remain, to stay true to. And John can use this in a multitude of ways. He'll use it in our reference to God. So persevere with full involvement with your relationship to God. There seems to be this uh, implication that your relationship to God might be challenged. So you need to root into it, stay in it, remain true to that. But it, it can be used in reference to you and me. To, to this place, to this church, to this body, to us. Remain, root in, persevere with full involvement as you can. It can even just be used in general reference to location. So it'll say things like, and Jesus remained there for two months or three months. It's this idea of showing up and being present in the situation, remaining. And there's a commentary here about an intentionally stationary life where the default position is perpetual, persevering presence, secure stationary stability, life locked to the Lord. I have to prove that I can do alliteration because I don't use that with my sermons enough, so I just, that, you don't have to pay extra for that. Here, here's my point. We live in a time that's very transient, and I get it. Some of you are college students. You're probably not going to be in Portales forever. Uh, travel is easy. It's something that we do often now compared to generations prior to us, and there's definitely reasons that God allows that to happen and moves pieces, and that's God's ability to do that, but the default position for us as Christ followers should never be just always trying to look to the next thing, but it is to say, God will move me when he's ready. For now, I am locked here. I remain both with him and with others. That seems to be Jesus' implication. If we want to be true in our relationship with God and others, it demands that we remain. We will never know true relationship without abiding in the Father through Jesus. But that is only the halfway point. To, to stop at abiding is to suggest that we can then grow in our relationship to God as individuals without any need for anyone else. So just abide in God, don't worry about other people. Meaning that the church and small groups and intentional communities, that's all just extra credit assignments for the people that are really particularly faithful, but it's not necessary to grow in your spiritual formation to God but because spiritual growth is an isolated event that just happens between you and God. And if the apostles could hear us say something like that, they would be appalled. The early church has no concept of growing in your relationship to God without growing in your relationship to others. It is impossible. That is a very modern idea that we have grossly missed. 
Mike Mason, who's a Christian author uh, and speaker, says, says this, many Christians would rather look into their Bibles than into the eyes of fellow human beings. Many will pray, Lord, I want to be close to you, yet never do anything to get close to the people around them. But God has designed it so that the route to him lies through other people. There is no way to be close to God if we are not willing to be close to one another. It's not possible. It doesn't matter how many books you read, how many podcasts you listen to. This type of relationship God has instilled demands relation to one another. So we share in that mutual relationship with God. We remain, we abide, but then we also extend. This is exactly what Jesus is getting at in verse 12 and verse 17. This is my commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Remaining in God is always for the sake of loving someone else. Verse 17, this is what I command. Love one another. Yes, remaining is important, but we best share in our mutual relationship with God, not when we give love back to him, but when we give love away to others. First to each other then overflowing to the world outside of this room. And I have to say then, if that's the case, we do that not by replicating the broken concepts of how relationships work in this world and then trying to call that good, but in redefining that way of doing relationships in love and in the way of God. Because our world, again, has a totally broken view of how community and relationships work works. It always approaches relationships with this mentality of, what can I get out of this person? What could they bring to my life that I couldn't provide for myself otherwise? And if they can highlight something and bring me something good, then I'll befriend them. But if they can't, then I don't worry about that. That's how we do relationships. Even more so that reflecting on this, Eugene Peterson writes this, each of us has, a con- has contact with hundreds of people who never look beyond our surface appearance. We have dealings with hundreds of people who, the moment they set eyes on us, begin calculating what can we do or what can use, uh, what use can we be to them? What can they get out of us? We meet hundreds of people who take one look at us. They make snap judgments and then slot us into necessary categories so that they won't have to deal with us as people. And they treat us as something less than we are. And if we're in constant association with them, we become less. And I absolutely agree with Eugene Peterson. The problem is, I think that same mentality has infiltrated the church. So we can actually flip it around and read it to say something like, each one of us has contacts with a hundred of people, hundreds of people every day that we never look beyond the surface of their appearance. We have dealings with hundreds of them that the moment we set eyes, we begin calculating what use they can be to us and what we can get out of them. We meet hundreds of people that we take one look at, we make snap judgments on them, and then slot them into necessary categories so that we won't have to deal with them as people. We treat them as something less than they are, and if we're in constant association with that, we make them less. And like Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, after eating the fruit, sewing their fig leaves together out of fear of inadequacy and vulnerability, we look at our own inadequacies and our own uh, vulnerabilities, and we begin to cover them with fig leaves. Of course, we just use way fancier fig leaves today. And then we delude ourselves into thinking that those people with the fanciest fig leaves, they're the most impressive people. And those people with their vulnerabilities exposed, those people are the most repulsive. And Jesus seems to think that in his kingdom it's actually the opposite. 
That true relationship is not actually found in exterior appearance. And godliness is not in some adherence to some cultural dress code. It's found in how Jesus loves us. And then remaining in that love, we then extend it to one another. So that Eugene Peterson goes on in the same thing to write this. And then someone enters our life who isn't looking for someone to use. They're leisurely enough to find out what's really going on in us. They're secure enough not to exploit our weaknesses or attacks or strengths. They recognize our inner life and understand the difficulty of living in our inner convictions, and they confirm what's deepest within us, a friend. Is that the type of people we are to one another and to the world outside of us? Because this is what the gospel is inviting us to because it's how God treated us. God did not step into time and say, I want to save Philip Smith because he's going to offer something that I don't think I could get anywhere else. He's God. He doesn't need me. First Baptist Church doesn't need me. You don't need me. I have nothing to offer the eternal plan of the creator. It is only out of his love for me and all of my inadequacies that he would come in and say, but I will rescue you and choose you. This is the gospel. And if we don't display that horizontally, and we can preach it all day long, it doesn't make a difference. We can't just preach it. We actually have to live this relationship out. It is this that is Jesus' vision for the evidence of his gospel. True relationships within the church, then extended outside of the church to the lost. That seems to be Jesus' main means of apologetics. So much for that, uh, so much so that Oxford scholar Michael Green, when he's looking at this, he estimates that about 80% of evangelism in the early church came through a, quote, natural network of relationships, not through some form, formal means of teaching or preaching. And if you go back and read ancient critics of the church, this is exactly what they were saying. Uh, Celsus, an ancient, and I quoted this a couple weeks ago, uh, an ancient philosopher in critique of the church said this, by the fact that they themselves admit that these people, meaning these lesser people over here, that these people are worthy of God, they show that they want and are able to convince only the foolish, the dishonorable, and the stupid only to slaves and women and little children. See, in Celsus's imagination, if you're going to lead a movement, you have to go into the public square, have mass intellect, be able to debate with the smartest of people. And then if your arguments are convincing enough, maybe you'll be worthwhile following. So it's all about the convincing time. And he's mad because the church doesn't anticipate, they, they don't perpetuate that. I mean, there's a select few people that does. Paul would do it from time to time. But the bulk of the church was far too busy loving orphans and feeding the hungry to engage in public square debates. But the irony is, is that it's in those relationships built from abiding with their God that they just kept growing. Or in the words of Joseph Hellerman, whose book I've been really inspired by through this, people did not choose to follow Jesus solely because of what the early Christians believed. They converted because of the way the early Christians behaved. Might it be, sincerely, might it be that the Western church has been shrinking so rapidly because we've come to think far more like Celsus than we have the early church? 
That the assumed salvation process goes something like, like this, that first people get converted, so there's conversion, and then after conversion comes discipleship, and then after discipleship comes community. So, hey, man, there's, an individual is going to have this moment where the gospel message clicks, and they fall face first in repentance. And so the end goal of evangelism is, I really I need to find someone that's more convincing than I am, because I'm not a salesman, I'm not convincing enough for them. So the pastor, he's pretty good at convincing people when I'm not. So if I can just get them to show up to church and Philip doesn't botch the sermon that day, then maybe, maybe they'll have that experience. And there are times that people do have that experience. I'm not saying that never happens. But we envision that that's how it's, it's going to happen for everybody. That they'll come in, they'll have this convicting moment, and they'll convert. And then after that, they'll work out that experience through orthodoxy, through discipleship. That older, wiser saints will inject orthodoxy into the experience. And then a subgenre of that discipleship is usually like community. So community is just the small byproduct of faith, and it's just what comes on at the end. It's tacked on if you really want to be serious about Jesus. But for the rest of you, you can just stop at conversion. We don't have to worry about that. And I think Celsus would love that model, but it's not the model the, the, the Bible actually gives us of the early church. The early church actually looks something far more like community conversion discipleship. That, that community, and, and not just attending service on a Sunday morning, but the early church living in such close proximity with their neighbors and their brothers and sisters in Christ begin to live as if Jesus is truly Lord. And the world around them can't pretend like it's not happening. They can't ignore what's going on. And eventually, as curiosity about the love of these people, living as if Jesus is Lord, draws them in, they begin to see this community actually cares for one another. And I don't see that anywhere else in my world. And so even before they proclaim Jesus is Lord, they start showing up just wondering what on earth is going on at the house church of Lydia and Philippi. And then from there, that relationship leads to con, uh, conversion because it's so compelling. There's so much joy, so much strong marriage and tight families that it compels them eventually to themselves say, I give in. Jesus is Lord. You guys got it. No one else does. I'm giving my life to this cause, which then opens them up to a desire for true discipleship. That they go on to work out that experience in orthodoxy within the community that they fell in love with at the start. Might it be that Jesus' decision and his vision for remain in me, obey my command, love me, and then with that, I've told you these things that you may be complete, and in your joy it may be complete, verse 12, that it's my command that you would then go love one another as I have loved you. Might it be that this is Jesus' vision for what the church is supposed to look like? Never for the sake of getting more people in here, but for the sake of knowing when we do this correctly, it results in more love and more connections and more relationships because that's what our God specializes in. So let me close here. You notice in your bulletins maybe that have these little kind of bookmarks. Um, and what I want to do is just provide you with this to give you from now until the end of the year something to be a little bit more intentional in thinking about and praying for. Because like I said, next year, this whole idea of horizontal connection, that's the focus. That is what we focus on from here on out all next year. It's going to be great. It's going to be fun, I promise. Every sermon series, it's all going to be how do we link together. But it starts here. You actually have to be mindful of it. You're going to have to make intentions of coming to church to connect with people, not to just sit down and leave. That's how we grow. 
So here's just some prayer questions that I would encourage you to keep in your Bibles and just take a few moments each Sunday, either before you get here or once you get here to pray. How am I becoming a person of love to the people who know me best and interact with me most frequently? How are you being a person of love to the people that sit across the pews from you? How am I attentive to those I don't recognize on Sunday morning, and how do I better initiate relationships with them? When you see someone you don't know, is the initial response, I want to go get to know them, or is it, "Uh, I can't talk to them? How do we foster a community that actually goes and reaches and loves those people that come and join us? What about, did I learn any new names and faces? How can I better minister and pray for them? Not a name just for the sake of saying, oh, I asked them their name to be courteous, but for the sincere desire of, I want to know them and pray for them and encourage them. And then how can I foster deeper relationships with them outside the Sunday morning service? If our horizontal relationships never leave this room, we will never be the type of church God wants us to be. I cannot express that enough. It demands something beyond this. So what do we do? I honestly don't have much in the terms of practical application for you. I mean, you can take that and derive out what you will from it. But I would just close by saying this. When that day comes, and you're on your deathbed, lying in that little specially made hospital bed that folds up just for you, and there's the morphine drip and the heart rate monitor, and you barely hear the beep of your heart, and you begin to think about what your life was like, you will not be thinking about your accomplishments or your failures. You will not think about all the degrees you have and all the achievement plastered on certificates that went on your wall. You will not proudly pull up your bank account and say, look at how much money I made. You will think about the people you loved. You will think about the relationships you had. This is universal for all of us. You will not think about the stresses that made you frantic this morning. You will not think about the final exams that you had to focus on at the end of the semester. You will think about the roommates and the faces and the stories and the events because what forms us is actually one another. How are we doing that right here, right now? Father God, we come to you thankful that you are a God that gives us the chance for relationship. God, that it's a deeply entrenched reality into who you are as a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then given to us in the gift of your image. But God, like all sin, when we violate that image, it never makes us more human. It always makes us less. It deprives us of our mental stability. It hurts us in things that are hard. And God, while relationships are always difficult, It's not to say that we'll just do it and it'll be easy. There will always be the need of forgiveness. There'll be the need of asking for forgiveness. There is so much that is needed in stuff like this. But it is to say when we live it as you envisioned it, that it begins to make a difference right in our hearts, in this church, and it will make a difference in Fortalis because that is the gospel you have written. Restoration to you and restoration to one another. Let us do it right now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, this is your time to respond if the Holy Spirit would lead you. And that's on you to pray about and ask. I'll be here if you'd like to pray more. Stand.